Thank you, Lois. I'd like to actually start by inviting any kids who would like to come forward uh, to do so for a children's message uh, this morning. We'll gather kind of around this table here. I've got a little show and tell for you, so. Looks like it's going to be a light crew this morning. Oh, here come a few more. So I brought, uh, like I said, sort of something for show and tell a little bit. This is actually one of my son Levi's toys, and he was gracious enough to let me bring it with. I'm going to open this up, and uh, you guys can see what it is. What do you think's in here? Toys, more specifically. Anyone have an idea of what? Toy tools? Close. It does say tool shop on the front. I forgot about that. A toy airplane? You got it. Except for it's kind of in pieces, right? It's not put together. I got a whole bunch of different parts here. But see how it's, uh, it's not the way it's supposed to be? It's all kind of in pieces. We're going to be talking about that a little bit uh, this morning when we look at our text during the sermon. We're going to be talking a bit about how this world isn't the way that it's supposed to be. Can you guys think of any examples of how this world isn't the way it's supposed to be? Things that maybe aren't right or aren't the way that God would want them to be? Yeah. Wars. Wars. Yeah. What else? Any other things that you wish weren't part of the world? Yeah. Robbery. Robbery. Other things? You are the only one who's speaking so far, yeah. <laughs> she just said, am I the only one who's speaking? Well, I am too. It's you and me in this together, so. Uh, would we maybe say like disease and sickness, right? Death. You could say people not having enough food uh, to eat or water to drink. There's places in the world, places in our own country where that's the case. Yeah. People are homeless. That's right. They don't have a place to stay. They don't have a place to shelter them. Mad people? Yeah. Oh, bad people. Yeah. And, and maybe mad people, too, <laughs> if, if they never are not mad. There's a lot, right? There's a lot of things that aren't right with this world. And so we're going to be talking about how it is that God works on that. And I thought, as kind of an illustration, do you guys want to help me put this back together, maybe? So this goes, the wings kind of go right in here. And there's actually one other piece first. That's the cockpit. So it kind of fits right in there. And actually, I've got a couple of screws that sort of go in, although this is going to take a little while, so I brought something else to help us. This is honestly my favorite children's toy. Anyone else want to try and put some pieces on? All right. We'll start here. How about you? Uh, let's see what we can do next. Let's, um, oops, we lost the propeller. This plane is not very airworthy. Should we put that on first? Why don't you stick that in there and see what happens? Well done. You want to pass that to somebody else? We'll do the next part. We'll do a windshield here. It's kind of tedious work, but you know, I fix a lot of airplanes, so you just have to stick with it. Now you want to do the, the wheels next? Let's do this engine on this wing first. And then we can do, yeah, how about you put those wheels right there? Perfect. Yeah, who can, uh, who can help next? Well done. 
All right, last one. Can you take that engine? Perfect, and it goes on the other wing. This is a really odd airplane. It has both a prop propeller and two jet engines. I don't know if I've ever seen an airplane quite like that. And how's that look? A lot better, right? I know, I wish there were more pieces to put on because you're all having so much fun with it. This is actually what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about the concept of peace in the Bible. And the way that the Bible actually talks about peace is that uh, it describes things the way they're supposed to be. This is what this plane is supposed to look like. It's not supposed to be all in pieces. And this world isn't supposed to be the way that it is either. We talked about some of the things that aren't right with it, right? And so what God is doing through his work of spreading peace in the world is he's making it the way it's supposed to be again. He's, he's restoring his world, and he's doing that through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's part of why we celebrate Christmas next week is because Jesus has come as the Savior who puts the world back together the way it's supposed to be. Thank you for helping me put the plane back together. Levi will be very happy about that, that it's back together again. You guys can make your way back to your seats. And we, the rest of us, are going to turn to our texts for this morning. Romans 15, verse 13. And then also Isaiah chapter 9. And if you're following along in the Bibles and the pews, Romans 15, 13 is on page 922. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, is on page 559. We've been using this, uh, this verse from Romans to sort of orient ourselves throughout this Advent series, and then we've been using a passage from Isaiah to dive deeper each week, and so we begin again in Romans 15. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman church back then, as well as to us as the church today. He said, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then flipping to Isaiah chapter 9, we'll read the first seven verses. And this is what the prophet Isaiah says. He says, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice in the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, we have said this each week of this uh, Advent season, but the season of Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of waiting on the Lord, a season of waiting for Christ our Savior, a season of waiting for all that God will do 
as he works to redeem and restore this world. We've talked about this uh, again each week, but that waiting has two parts to it. First, in Advent, we commemorate the waiting that God's people, the Israelites, did for centuries as they waited for God's Savior to come. But as people of that Savior, believers in Jesus Christ today, our waiting during Advent is more than just commemorative. That's because while the Israelites waited for Christ's first coming, we wait for his second. We wait for him to come back. We wait for him to come again. We wait for the day when he will come and bring to fulfillment all that he began to do during his first coming here. And so Advent points us back to Christmas, which is why we celebrate it each year leading up to Christmas. But it also points us ahead. It points us to everything that's still to come, everything that's still going to happen, everything that still lies ahead of us as Christian believers. As such, Advent forms a couple historic Christian values or qualities in us, and that's what we've been looking at in this series. Advent makes us first people of hope, people who can look into the future and know, really know, that what we believe will someday come true. Second, Advent makes us people of love who show deep affection and commitment not only to God, but also in our horizontal relationships with each other. Third, it makes us people of joy, joy in the Lord, a joy that no circumstance or situation can touch or take away from us. And finally, Advent makes us people of peace. And so that's what we've been talking about here at Ivanrest this Advent season. We've been talking about those four historic Christian values, hope, love, joy, and peace, and how we, as people waiting for our Savior, become people of hope, love, joy, and peace as well. And so we conclude this morning with the last one. We conclude with peace. And as I just talked about a little bit uh, with the kids, the Bible defines peace differently from how we do today. Uh, You see, the biblical word for peace, at least the Hebrew one, including here in our passage for this morning, is the word shalom. Uh, At least that's the word we translate peace. The truth, though, is that shalom expresses a much deeper, much fuller, much more fleshed out and comprehensive idea than we often mean by the word peace in English these days. See, when we hear that word peace today, we often think of the absence of conflict, right? Peace means that there's no one fighting, no one arguing, no one attacking or antagonizing anyone else. For instance, countries who are not at war with each other are at peace. Uh, Spouses who don't fight a lot have a peaceful marriage. And neighbors have peace if they can coexist with each other in their neighborhood. In short, Our understanding of peace these days basically means that nothing bad is happening. But the biblical definition of peace, shalom peace, is different. That's because according to the Bible, true peace, shalom peace, is is not just that nothing bad is happening, it's flourishing, it's abundance, it's well-being, the idea of life as a whole going well, or as theologian Neil Planninga puts it, the way things are supposed to be. It's not just countries not fighting each other, it's countries actively allied with each other and working together. It's not just a husband and wife not arguing a lot in their marriage, it's them instead doing all that they can to serve and cherish each other in their relationship together. 
And it's not, just na- it's not just neighbors who put up with each other or coexist next door to each other, but instead who look out for, befriend, and actually go out of their way to help each other. That's shalom. That's peace. That's goodness. That's flourishing. That's the way things are supposed to be. And that's the kind of peace that our passage this morning is talking about. Now, this passage actually begins on kind of an ominous note. That's because this passage begins in darkness. In the verses just before this, at the end of chapter 8, the prophet Isaiah writes this. He says, they, God's people, will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. And then in verse 1 of our passage, he says, in the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, we talked about this in the first uh, sermon in this series, but much of the first half of this book, the book of Isaiah, is judgment, okay? It's God judging his people, Israel and Judah, for disobeying and rebelling against him. And the means, the method that God is going to use to judge his people is the Assyrian Empire, He tells them over and over that he is going to allow the Assyrians to invade their land, defeat them, take them over, and eventually exile them away. And like we said, that eventually happened. In 722 BC, after the Israelite king Hosea rebelled against the Assyrian king Shalmaneser, Shalmaneser gathered his forces, invaded Israel, and made rather quick work of them. Now, the two tribes that Isaiah mentions here, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, are two of the northernmost territories in the historic uh, borders of Israel. So they're the orange and purple parts right up there towards the top. The way that the invasion of the Assyrians worked, the Assyrians had taken over a lot of the land surrounding Israel before they invaded Israel, including the northern areas up above to the north of Israel. And so when they finally came down to invade uh, Israel, that's exactly what they did. They came down from the north. And Naphtali and Zebulun ended up being the route to the capital city of Samaria. So when the Assyrians invaded, those two territories, those two tribes, got it the worst. They became the invasion route that the Assyrian armies marched through. As John Oswalt writes in his commentary here, the Assyrian conquests began in the tribal territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, which extended from the Jezreel Valley northward to the foot of Mount Hermon. A major part of that area is what is known today as the Hula Valley, The Jordan River flows through this valley before emptying into the Sea of Galilee. Not only was this a lush agricultural area, it was also the place through which the main trade route from Mesopotamia to Egypt ran, which was called the Way of the Sea. Thus, it is easy to see why it was high on the priority list for conquest. And like I said, it was also the main route, the quickest and most efficient route to the capital city. And so that's the darkness here. That's the distress that Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about the destruction, the havoc, uh, the devastation that Assyria has unleashed on the people of Israel. And yet right there, where the darkness and distress have become the darkest, Isaiah says a light has dawned. 
He writes, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Oswald captures Isaiah's mood well here when he writes, in the very areas where the Assyrian conquests began, there God promises that a light will dawn. God is greater than Assyria, and he promises that just as these people have experienced the grief and despair of conquest, they will also experience the joy and triumph of victory. In other words, what God is promising here is that he will roll back his people's distress and darkness, their chaos and defeat, their shame and terror, and he will do it precisely where it began. That's what he's pledging to his people. Ground zero of their distress is where he will suddenly shine a light. That's what he's telling them he'll do. He's telling them that he will reestablish shalom, reestablish peace, reestablish things the way they're supposed to be, and he will do it in the very place where things feel the least like they are supposed to be. I'll be honest, it's a beautiful promise. It's a beautiful hope. It's a beautiful expression of God's love and commitment to his people. And the best part is that it keeps going. It's because in verses four and five, Isaiah writes, for as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. The imagery here is of the cessation of hostilities. All violence, war, and oppression will end. All aggression will cease. The warrior's kit, their clothes and armor will be burned. Their weapons melted down. Everything used for brutality and pain done away with. And for people who have experienced that brutality and pain, that is a beautiful promise. In other words, there will be peace. War is not part of God's good creation. And so eventually he tells his people who have been on the receiving end of that war, it will disappear. There will be shalom, wholeness. Things will be the way they're supposed to be again. As Isaiah says earlier in the book, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That's the vision here. That's the picture. It's a picture of the world restored the world as it should be, the world the way that God intended it. Just as a side note, by the way, but all that right there, that's why I'm a pacifist, okay? I've mentioned this a few times in different sermons, uh, and a few of you have asked me about that. There's a lot of war in the Bible. Why are you a pacifist? That's why. Visions like that. 
Yes, there's a lot of war in the Bible. Yes, there's a lot of war today, but there eventually won't be. The boots used in battle, the clothing dipped in blood will be done away with, burned, incinerated. The swords will become plowshares, the spears pruning hooks, and nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Instead, this world will finally be the way God intended it, with nothing that he didn't intend. There will be no war, no hostility, no violence, And as God's people who believe in that coming reality, we are called to live into that reality. So anyway, brief aside, that's why I'm a pacifist, because I'm trying to live into that. And I'm not telling you, you need to be a pacifist, by the way. I'm just saying it's the biblical position that makes the most sense, so. I'm kidding, sort of. How is that all going to happen, though? How are we going to have this world that's restored with nothing that's not supposed to be part of it anymore? How is God going to bring that about? How is he going to accomplish this great feat of restoration, renewal, and shalom? Well, the answer that comes to us here is through the birth of a child. Isaiah writes, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Again, Oswald writes in his commentary, God's answer to the oppression and hostility of this proud and cruel world is not to come as a jackbooted warrior to smash the opposition. It's to come as a child, an infant, a baby. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones writes about that in her children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, recording the story of the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary to tell, him, to tell her that she is going to give birth to God's son, Jesus. Lloyd-Jones writes this, Gabriel said, Mary, you're going to have a baby, a little boy. You will call him Jesus. He is God's own son. He's the one. He's the rescuer. The God who flung planets into space and kept them whirling around and around. The God who made the universe with just a word. The one who could do anything at all was making himself small and coming down as a baby. Wait, God was sending a baby to rescue the world? But it's too wonderful, Mary said, and felt her heart beating hard. How can it be true? Is anything too wonderful for God, Gabriel asked. So Mary trusted God more than what her eyes could see, and she believed. I am God's servant, she said. Whatever God says, I will do. That's God's plan. That's his solution to the brokenness and not rightness of this world. That's his answer to the darkness, the distress, and the gloom. His answer is a child. But not just any child. Because as Isaiah says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. There's a lot we could unpack there. For our purposes this morning, though, I just want to highlight a couple of things. First, this child will be the kind of ruler, the kind of king that Israel has longed for. 
You see, this isn't the first time, actually, in their history that Israel has experienced a period of chaos and of uncertainty, of darkness and gloom. They've actually dealt with that before. That's because during the time of the judges, before Israel had a king, the Bible tells us that everyone did as they saw fit, and it led to social and political anarchy. And so the people asked for a king. They asked for a king to come and end the anarchy and chaos. They wanted peace. They wanted shalom. They wanted things the way that they're supposed to be. And having a king, they believed, was the way to get there. Unfortunately, though, their kings didn't live up to that. God gave them kings. But if you know Israel's history, and you know that rather than bringing stability, flourishing, and abundance, Israel's kings instead brought oppression, immorality, and a never-ending cycle of bloody insurrections. Far from the ideal Israel had envisioned, their kings often turned out to be anything but what they were hoping for. But not this king. This king, says Isaiah, will be different. This king will be new. This king will be what God's people had always longed for. As Alec Matyer writes in his commentary here, when people requested a king in 1 Samuel 8, they wished to replace the episodic rule of the judges with the permanency of monarchy. The king to come is the ultimate fulfillment of this longing. And then Matyer goes on. He comments specifically on this king's title, Prince of Peace. He says, peace is personal fulfillment, well-being, harmony, peace with God. The verb salem or shalom means to be whole, complete. Prince corresponds to our idea of administrator. This prince then, at one with God and his people, administers the benefits of peace and wholeness in his benign rule. So this promised child, this anticipated ruler, this coming king will be the true king that Israel has always longed and hoped for. He will roll back the darkness, reverse the distress, undo the chaos, and finally bring God's shalom. And he will do that permanently. You see, unlike Israel's previous kings, this king's accomplishments will last. They'll continue. They'll keep going. Again, as Isaiah says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And then Matyar says, his rule will be unchanging in its character and peace, without end in space and time. The fulfillment of the Davidic ideal, reflecting the holiness of God and its devotion to justice and practice and righteousness and principle, and guaranteed by the commitment and activity of the Lord. In other words, this king will be what Israel has always hoped and longed for, the king they'd always wanted, and he will be that for them forever. No more going back. And he will be that for us forever too. You see, we're also people walking in darkness. Sure, our our darkness might not be a foreign invasion of hostile armies that are coming to destroy our land and devastate us as a people, but we live in distress and gloom too. That's because our darkness is sin. Our distress is death. And our gloom is a broken relationship with God. And yet, like God's people So long ago, a light has shone here too. 
As the Apostle John writes in the opening lines of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and, the, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. My friends, that light indeed shines. That light has indeed dawned. And that light continues to shine among us even now. His name is Jesus Christ. He came to earth, lived among us, died for our sins, and then rose to new life so that we could have new life too. As Christians, we call that the gospel. It's the good news of how God has restored his shalom, his peace, how things are supposed to be to his world and to us. As Oswald writes, the child eventually born of the virgin is the son of David, but is also the son of God. The bulk of his ministry was in Galilee, up north in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, but he was enthroned on a cross in Jerusalem. By taking into himself the, the sin and oppression, the horror and tragedy of this world, he was able, able to give back righteousness and freedom, hope and fulfillment. The contemporary significance of this passage of Scripture comes down to this. Have we allowed the child king to take over the government of our lives? Only then can we know the benefits of God with us. We cannot have the light, the honor, the joy, the abundance, the integration that he offers in any other way. It's through Christ that we experience the shalom, the peace, the goodness and wholeness that God offers to us. For Christ is the king to come. As we'll celebrate in a week's time, he is the king who came, and he is the king who will one day come again to fully and finally bring his peace, his shalom to this world again. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you made this world good. You made it very good. You made it the way it's supposed to be. And then with our sin, we unmade it. But you, through your son Jesus Christ, are making all things new. As we sang earlier, Lord, let that peace, that shalom, that way things are supposed to be start in us, start here. It's in the name of Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.